love worshipping together. I love it that God's presence comes. He comes always, doesn't he? He's so faithful to us. And, and this is just to state the obvious. But this book, the Holy Bible, is absolutely chock-a-block full of incidents and stories about a God of grace. If you don't know much about Christianity, perhaps this is your first time in church, I want to say that this book, God's Wonderful Word, is absolutely bursting with story after story after story of actual real events that all effectively say one thing, that we have a God of staggering staggering grace. And I know that most of us in this room would know that. But this is what I I felt God very clearly as I was looking at Genesis 9, which is what we're going to look at in just a moment. As we look at the whole of this chapter, I think it causes us to realise one very important truth about grace. And this is it. Is that grace, God's grace, has always existed with an intent to have an effect on us. Do you get that? That God's grace has always existed with an agenda, if I might put it that way, that we might be transformed and changed as a result of it. God's grace has always been designed to to go to work in the hearts of men and women. And if I was to ask you here today, most of you would probably say you're Christians. We we can easily ask ourselves the question and say, yes, I know that, Tom. You're stating the obvious, my friend. We know this. And we can probably think, if I was to say to you, has grace done its work in our hearts? We would probably all say, I think so, yes. Tick. I'm, I'm sure it has. And it is continuing to do. But what we find in Genesis 9 here today, and again again and again throughout Scripture, is this incredible thing. Is that the only true way we really find out whether grace, God's grace, is in here, is when we actually face an unexpected circumstance that tests us to respond quickly. That's what we find. Those are the moments when we don't have time to kind of work out the right holy response, where we find out truly what is in here and whether God's grace that we have experienced is not just next to us but in us so that then when we face a circumstance that causes us to respond, we respond out of grace. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to see today. So my key question therefore, City Church, for us today is this. As has The grace of God truly affected our hearts. And so my title today is The Place of Grace in Softening Our Souls. Or to put it another way, The Place of Grace in Refining Your Response. However you want to put it, you get the idea. And what we're about to read in Genesis 9 is an astonishing actual event that really happened. If you were here last week, you would have heard Mr. Hugh Pierce excellently open um, chapter 8 where we heard about the astonishing reality of a real flood that really happened at a specific time in history that wiped out every single person on planet Earth, apart from at least eight. That's Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. That equals eight. At least eight. (laughs) And so today in chapter nine, we pick up where Hugh left off. It's effectively the end of the world, apart from a few people. Anyone here seen I Am Legend? I haven't. But there's loads of films, <laughs> just to encourage you. It's a, it's a story about the end of the world kind of thing, I think. And, and sort of a few, I think Will Smith is the main guy. He's Noah today, okay? Will Smith, Noah, similar. Um, and I think somehow, basically, he survived the end of the world. There's loads of films about this, aren't there? It's a current thing that the world is thinking about. What happens if... A virus went throughout the world and wiped everything out. Well, the reality is, we don't have to imagine it, because this really happened. It actually happened that Noah and the other guys that I've mentioned were the only survivors in a cataclysmic club, club? in a cataclysmic flood that wiped out (laughs) the world as we know it. And so today, as we read about Noah 
and the few have survived, we're going to be taken into the, into, the, into the heart of what they must have been feeling. Just imagine what it would be like to actually be the only survivors of God judging the whole world. I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing. The, the mixture of emotions that you would feel, both at one level, incredible grief at probably dead bodies lying around and just the, the awfulness of what's happened. And yet at the other, the other extreme, you would feel such incredible gratitude. By the grace of God, you had been spared. Not because of your own intrinsic righteousness, but just because God is so good and kind. I mean, it's amazing. The air would have smelt, smelt sweeter. The bird's songs would have sounded more beautiful. Solid ground. Anyone here been sailing before for any length of period of time? A few. I have. I'm not a sailor. Just saying that. I went on an OYC, Ocean Youth Club holiday. Horrendous. Five days in gale force in the English Channel. And for, 20, for 48 hours, we got kind of caught in some sort of eddy or something. I don't know what the term is. We were out at sea for hours. I was 15 years old. And we, when we came into Falmouth Harbour, I can tell you some very green-faced, sickly 15-year-olds stumbled onto that harbour. And the solidness of that ground was a beautiful thing to behold. Believe me, things you take for granted when you've been at sea for many, many weeks are just so gorgeous and sweet. And here we see these eight people coming out going, solid ground, hallelujah, hallelujah. We're back here somehow by the grace of God. We have been saved. And you can, you can see in this chapter really two very clear things that, that we're going to look at today. Two, two, two main things. First of all, in the first half of the chapter, we see another layer of grace poured out by God. What I'm saying is this. God has already demonstrated one layer of grace in terms of saving Noah and his family from judgment. They come out of the ark and now what we're about to read is a a second layer of God's grace upon Noah and his family in the form of 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 a covenant of kindness towards them. Both past grace in terms of being saved by judge, from judgment, but now we're going to read a second layer of grace that God pours out upon his people, upon Noah and his family. But then what we're going to see in the second half of this chapter, and this is where it gets really, really personal, is that we're going to see Noah and his sons in an incident many of us will know about in the context of grace. We're going to see one thing, one incident happen with Noah and two differing responses between his sons. So that's where we're going this morning. We're going to see, first of all, this second layer of grace in the form of an amazing covenant that God's about to unveil to Noah. But then secondly, in the context of grace, we're going to see an unexpected incident in the life of Noah, and we're going to see two different responses emerge. I think it will become clear as we go through it. So first of all then, the first half. We'll read the first few verses and it should come up behind me if you haven't got your Bible. Verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you, the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. Amen. And as I give you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. And from every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, again, be fruitful and multiply. Team on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you. That never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I will make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, 
and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant, say covenant, Covenant. that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So, first of all then, what we've just read in summary is this. First part of God's grace, saved by grace from judgment. Tick. But now, amazingly, not have they only just been just saved by grace, now God says, and do you know what? From now on, I am now unfurling before you a covenant of future guaranteeing grace upon your life. It's what I've called grace upon grace, or grace, grace. These two amazing aspects to the Christian life of grace, not just being in terms of being saved from something, but you are saved into something. Does that make sense? As a Christian, it means that we've been pardoned from judgment. But not only that, it means then that we are ushered into a new life of ongoing grace and enjoyment of our Heavenly Father. As Christians, sometimes we we almost summarize being a Christian as just being saved. It's not actually how Christ talked about it. Yes, we are saved. We are saved from judgment. But as Noah here demonstrates, actually you're saved then into an amazing ongoing covenant of blessing. Jesus says the kingdom is here, the kingdom of heaven. We are saved from something, but we're also saved that we would be ushered into an ongoing life of enjoyment of God. And what we see here, in summary, is three aspects of this grace, grace. Three aspects of this covenant that God has just unveiled for Noah and his family. First of all, a covenant of increase. Secondly, a covenant of order. But also a covenant, thirdly, of peace. Let's have a quick look at those three in turn. First of all, we see here a covenant of increase. Verse 1. God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Where does We heard that already in the Bible. Right at the beginning in Genesis 1. God's already said it first of all. And we see it here again, and we'll see it again in verse 7 in this chapter. And we have to realize, just to state the obvious, that in Scripture, having kids is always meant to be a blessing. It's meant to be a positive thing. God likes it. He kind of has something to do with it normally, I think, always. He's the one who brings it about. He's glorious. And in a very real way, we have to understand here, God is pretty, pretty keen on Noah and his sons making sure that him and their wives, you know, have some fun together because the entire biblical history rests on the fact that they need to do this or else Abraham wouldn't have been born and Moses and, and Paul and, the, and, and all those that we see in the rest of the Bible. This is actually a very real command from God. Be fruitful and multiply because the rest of my plans depend on it. And what we have to realize here is that this is in the context where God has just brought great destruction. And when we think about the heart of God, you see, the heart of God primarily is never a God of decrease or destruction. He is primarily a God always of increase And multiplication. You see, here it's talking in a literal sense about physical babies being born. But actually, although that's still wonderful and glorious, this is a foreshadowing of a time of a new covenant, which we are in now, where actually we would all be called to go forth and make disciples. That we would almost multiply that which God has put in us. That God is passionate about increase. He loves to bring multiplication. In Isaiah 9, prophesying about Jesus, he says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. end. Ever. No way. Not ever. God is passionate about building his kingdom and his church. That is his absolute core disposition. It says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says that we are being transformed into the same image of God from one degree of glory to another. You might say, Tom, I don't feel like that, mate. You haven't seen my week this past week. Well, it doesn't matter. God's promise is that he is committed. He is committed. Even when you feel so weak, 
He is so committed to multiplication in your life. You see, Psalm 107, verse 35 says this. He turns a desert into pools of water. A parched land into springs of water. See, God is a God who loves to take someone who's finding things difficult, who cries out to him and pours out an increasing measure of his glory. That's what he loves to do. If you're here today and you're thinking, I feel fairly dry. You know, the reality is, is that there is always water available. God is a God who always loves to bring an increasing outpouring of his measure. That's what we're seeing right here, right now in our church. It's so exciting. It seems like at every meeting that you go to, the sort of the headline is the same, increase, increase. God's pouring out his very presence more and more and more. And we see that here. And we even see it, I think, in a somewhat humorous way. This, this increasing of God's covenant here is even in terms of physical food. Hallelujah. We see here in verse 3, previously, previously God has supplied vegetables and plants for humans to eat. But now we see, in verse 3, every moving thing. Say every moving thing. Every moving thing. Cows. Sheep. Sheep. <laughs> Testing. Piggies. Every moving thing that, I, that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, thanks God, I give you everything. Hallelujah. Planet veg goes planet steak. We see here this wonderful, we can almost miss it. God is saying, I want even an increase in terms of the menu that you're allowed. You can just imagine it, can't you? I love it. Scholars seriously say, you know, the, right at the beginning, verse 2, it says, about, about mankind, it says, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the, of the earth. Well, I'm not surprised. They, they, scholars, with all seriousness, point out that the relationship between mankind and, and the beast has changed. I'm not surprised. You know, one minute you're just, you're just mates with Daisy the cow. No thoughts of eating her ever goes through your brain. And then suddenly the covenant of increase comes. It's like it goes, psst, when she's not looking. <laughs> Go on, mate. Barbecue sauce, gorgeous. <laughs> so we see this amazing covenant of increase. Can I have a hallelujah? hallelujah. If you're a vegetarian here, forgive me. <laughs> I love it. It's a favorite verse in the Bible. Every moving thing. Not really. It's so good. God is so kind. He's so kind. I mean, we think it's silly, and it is in a way, but God's so good. He's so loving. He wants us to enjoy eating food. And we see here, he's even kind to the animals, though, because he says, in verse 4, he says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is the blood. Actually, you've got to respect. I've got to respect that which you're going to eat, actually. And we see this whole issue here of blood actually then becomes a very central thing to the Bible. We're not going to look at that as a theme today. But even Martin earlier on sang about the blood of Christ actually is symbolic. It shows the life of the person. And right here we see that God is saying, yeah, I want you to go for it in terms of an increased menu. But I want you to treat with respect those animals actually that you're going to end up eating. And then secondly, we see here a covenant of order. Verse 5 says, for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. And what we see here is that God, first of all, in his grace, grace upon grace, expressed, first of all, through this wonderful covenant of increase, multiplication. But secondly now, we see here this covenant of order. A covenant of order. And what I mean by that is this is really, this is the first time in the Bible that we come across the whole idea of law. Now, for most of us, when we think of law, it probably hasn't got a very positive connotation. We kind of think of the law, uh, the police, Mark Nottage, or, you know, many other police people here. Um, uh, but, you know, we can sometimes think of it as a kind of negative thing. But as David Atkinson, the scholar, points out, it says, actually, in this fallen world after the flood, even after the drama of salvation in the, in the ark, mankind does not go back to the Eden. We are still this side of the garden, living with the tensions of a fallen world. There is continuity and discontinuity. 
God's creative word is not withdrawn, but it comes to us in a mode that is appropriate for a fallen world. God has not abandoned us, but he's given us his law in a way that now we did not have at the beginning. And what we've got to understand here is that despite the flood, as we learned last week from Hugh, that still the hearts of man is evil. It hasn't just solved all of the problem. And so now we have to understand this idea between what we call God's perfect will and God's provisional will. What I mean by that is this, is that back in the Garden of Eden, there was only the first of those, God's perfect will. On earth, as in heaven, there was no sin. So there was absolute perfect communication and all of the will of the Father was perfectly expressed on earth. But then in comes Genesis 3. We all know the story. Sin occurs. It's still present here. And so now what we're seeing here is the beginning of what scholars term God's provisional will. And what this means is it's like God saying, well, look, my perfect will is X, Y, and Z for you. But because of the fact that you are still fallen, actually, therefore, I'm going to provide with you a provisional will, uh, my law, in effect, that will protect you from destroying yourself. And we see, first of all, its expression here in verse 5. If you kill someone, then you too will be killed. Now, God doesn't want to have to kill anyone. But he's trying to put in here a very strong deterrent to emphasize the fact that right at the beginning here, life is incredibly precious to God. Life is incredibly precious to God. I think it's currently, I think there's about six billion people on planet Earth, roughly, I think, or near that figure. And yet the staggering, mind-blowing thing is, God knows every single one of them. He knows every single heart in this room, all 300. But he knows every single heart of six billion people. The life that God has generated in every single person is immeasurably, immeasurably precious to him. When God looks down on Kenya, right here, right now, and he sees the anarchy that's happening, believe me, God is moved. God's heart is grieved when life is taken. Romans tells us that God gives us governments and authorities, even if they're not overtly Christian, to in some way enforce this provisional law, this this act of his will, that we would have some semblance of order. This is a a covenant of incredible grace that God has given us here. And so we find here, therefore, that there's a second expression of the covenant, a covenant of order. And we find here, and this is so important in verse 6, the reason why God is so passionate about life and protecting it and giving it order. Verse 6, for God made man in his own image. When does that begin? When do we begin being a people as humans, mankind, who are made in the image of God? Is it when we're 21? And we are, in some senses, fully adult. Or is it when we're 16 and can in the, you know, buy various things? Or is it when we go to school? Is it when we leave the womb? Not, is it? It's the moment of conception. In a way that we cannot fathom. <laughs> That's amazing. Hello, little fella. I won't eat you, don't worry. (laughs) I promise. Mind you. There's a a robin flying around for the tape, in case you're wondering. How amazing. You just sit there, mate. Don't worry. Where was I? Conception. In seriousness. this This is actually where we... We we originate. This is actually, even an embryo, in some way, is made in the image of God. And you know, we might not be in Kenya, but you know where I'm going with this. Actually, we live in a society which allows something called abortion at an unbelievable rate. You know, the incredible statistic is that in America, in 200 years of American history, there's been about nine world wars, not literal world wars, but world conflicts that American military have been involved with. And over those 200 years, 1.2 million American military personnel have been killed. But you know, in one year in America today, currently 1.6 million babies are aborted legally. Uh, This is just, this is a whole other issue, but just right here at the beginning of of God's world, we see 
you know, in our day, we'll have to, we'll have to, by the grace and wisdom of God, as individually and corporately, we'll have to stand for God on this. I don't know what that means, but, you know, I believe that this is an atrocity. I really do. And I know it's very complicated. My wife, Josie's, she's been involved in very, com- before becoming a full-time mum, she, uh, she worked with, with, uh, with very difficult cases, often where women had been raped and had very difficult things happen to them. But nevertheless, friends, we, you know, this is, God's heart is that every life is, is made in his image. And God says here, I, I really take it seriously. I really take it seriously. So first of all, then we see a covenant of increase and then a covenant of order. But thirdly, see, we see the third expression of God's amazing grace here is a covenant of peace. It says here, I'll establish my covenant with you. That you shall never again, all the, sorry, that never again shall all the flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now, the thing about Noah and the story of Noah, if you're anything like me, when you think of Noah, it's one of those stories you kind of learn as a little kid at Sunday school when it's like, who built the ark? Who built the ark? Exactly. And it's just kind of like, Noah, you know, he's a nice guy. You know, Daisy's got a little kind of felt Noah boat, you know, ark. And it's just, you know, it's all kind of cuddly, isn't it, Noah? But the reality is actually is that the end of the world just happened, apart from a few wonderfully blessed individuals. And actually, when we see here this third expression of God's covenant, which is actually, I promise, I promise never again to flood the earth. This is an incredible moment of God's grace. This is incredible. We can miss it because of sometimes the kind of Noah effect of just thinking, oh, it's a nice cuddly story. But actually, this is powerful stuff that God promises in his word never again to flood the earth in a way that brings total judgment. It's amazing. And we see here that God establishes this physical demonstration of it called the rainbow, a bow that uh, in, in normal history is associated with an instrument as an instrument of war, now is like hung up because God is now wanting peace. And scholars also point out the fact that it's interesting when you think about a bow, it's obviously like that, which is actually the arrow of God's judgment is not pointing downwards towards us, but actually it's pointing to heaven. It's almost like God is preempting that day when his son would take the judgment for him, for us. It's amazing. And so we see here this establishment of God's amazing covenant of peace. Every time we see a rainbow, although it's a nice, pretty thing, actually, it's designed to do something in the heart of us. It points to the fact that God is saying, I will continue to allow my heart to be grieved over the sin of this world because I want more and more people to be saved. That's my covenant. When we see the rainbow, actually, it points to an astonishing God who has the whole world in his hands. When we see a rainbow, actually it's a covenant sign of God's astounding commitment to us. To be a Christian means that actually you can know real peace. Real peace. It doesn't mean that tough things won't happen. It doesn't mean that sometimes you'll go through things that you just think are so difficult. But the Bible talks about a peace that transcends understanding. And this is a wonderful foreshadowing of that kind of peace. Not just peace from the threat of an imminent watery judgment, but actually bring brought into a covenant of incredible peace with God. And so we see here, in these three ways, this amazing covenant of grace, grace. A covenant of, of increase, a covenant of order, and a covenant of peace. But what we then see is something quite incredible. The story has been, it's been describing a God of incredible glory. As you read this, and you really allow it to affect your heart, you think, this is just amazing, the majesty and the kindness of our God towards these eight people on planet Earth. But then what we see in the second and final part of this chapter is deliberately Moses, the author, he then puts the next story that you could not get more of a contrast. It's like a crunching of gears. And what we see now in the context of God's amazing glory and grace It's almost like you've been reading this heavenly few verses about God's kindness. Suddenly, you then come back to earth with a bump as we read a story that at first you can think, what on earth is that doing there? In this amazing flow of God's kindness and grace, suddenly we see the following few verses. We see here in verse 18, 
The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. So, so Noah has got drunk. The man that his righteousness is recorded in here, in the context of this extraordinary display of grace upon grace, the next event that we hear is that Noah gets drunk and he lies naked in his tent. And what we see now are two different reactions to this one event. And we mustn't miss this. This is so important. In the context of receiving grace upon grace, sin occurs, and then what we see is two different reactions to the same sin. One of them, not good. The other one, outstanding. The first, then, we read in verse 22 is the response of his son called Ham. And I called him hard-hearted Ham. Verse 22. Ham saw the nakedness of his father and he told his brothers about it. Now, what is clear here that we can sometimes miss is that the reaction of Ham actually is totally disrespectful. And it gives the impression, actually, that he didn't just see it and glance away, but he actually looked intently at it. And it seems that he almost delighted in it because he then goes straight away and he blabs about it to his brothers. Now, sometimes, when we come across sin, it's totally appropriate that we go and tell others about it. But what we see here is actually a reaction that displays a heart that has not been softened by the grace that God has exposed him to is that when he comes across sin, despite the fact that Ham was one of those eight few people who had received grace upon grace, when he comes across this incident of sin, he responds in a way that displays his attitude is actually one of smugness, self-righteousness and judgment. It's amazing. And so we see here that clearly, even when Noah comes around, he wakes up, we see in verse 25, he says, Cursed be Canaan, that's the son of Ham. For you shall be a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Stay with me here. What that is saying here, Noah is saying, when he wakes up and finds the reaction, this first wrong reaction of Ham, he's saying, your son Canaan, he's going to walk in the same way that you will. He shall just be a servant to his other brothers. I.e., that the sin that we've just seen Ham commit, in some ways Canaan will also inherit and walk in the same way. There's no humility at all in Ham at all. And the act that he chooses, the action that he takes in terms of looking at it and then going telling his brothers, clearly has no heart for restoration at all. Basically, he's got juicy gossip. He's got information. And as we know, information is power. And you can almost imagine him, to his absolute shock, seeing his dad, who was the head of that family, the dude in this position of undignified drunkenness, lying there. And you can almost imagine him, in a perverse way, taking glee over it, in his heart, and going off immediately and blabbing to his brothers. His attitude, his heart attitude was hard. That grace had not done its work in terms of softening his heart. And the way that we know that was because when sin came along, and he responded to it in a way that actually was ungodly. Now this is the really important thing for us. See, follow the the line of thinking here. An obvious sin in terms of getting really drunk and lying uncovered in your tent, in the case of Noah, led to Ham falling into subtle sin. You see, most of us, when we come across obvious sin, we don't often then think, oh, well, I'll indulge in that as well. Most of us, if we come across someone who's getting drunk who's a friend of ours, a brother or a sister... We won't often go, oh, that means I'll get drunk as well. Most of us have the wisdom to avoid the obvious sin. But what we see here in Ham is that he falls into the trap of then causing that, allowing that to cause in him a subtle sin. The sin of pride. The sin you can almost imagine his mind thinking, oh, dad, you wouldn't find me being so foolish as to do that. And this is the reality, is that sin is horribly contagious. 
It's horribly contagious. That's why Jesus and Paul and many others in the New Testament, when they talk about sin, they often talk about it as something like yeast. Yeast goes into dough and then it spreads. And what we see here is that the sin of Noah has infected Ham. He's responded in a way that's led him into a place of pride, gossip and judgment. And this is actually huge. We have to be a people that realise when we see sin, we have to be so careful. This is why in Galatians 6, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, but keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Do you understand that? When we as a church come across brothers and sisters who are in sin, that is the moment. That is the moment where we have to, rather than just respond as Ham did, we have to go, I'm going to consciously, deliberately draw upon in my heart and mind the grace of God that I've received in terms of salvation. The grace of God in terms of his wonderful covenant of blessing to me. Allow it to fill my heart afresh with softness and gratitude and then to take action. This isn't what Ham's done at all. His heart has responded in a fleshly way. But what we see finally, wonderfully, is that two out of the three brothers get it spot on. We see here, soft-souled Shem and Japheth. In verse 23. (laughs) Then Shem and Japheth took a garment. They laid it on both their shoulders and they walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. What a contrast. The same incident has caused him one brother who has not allowed the grace he has experienced to fill and soften his heart, caused him to fall into sin. The same incident in the hearts of his two other brothers causes them with total loyalty and love and respect for their father. They too take action, but the action is not to go and just blab about it and delight in it. Their action actually is to restore. It's to come in with respect and to cover And this is the heart of our Heavenly Father. This is why it says, for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5, it says, My son, do not regard lightly the the discipline of the Lord. Do not be weary when when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. You see, our Father, I think, when he sees the equivalent in our life of what Noah did, might not be as quite as dramatic. He deals with us in a way like Shem and Japheth. He comes lovingly, kindly. Yes, he brings action to change our behaviour. It's not to condone sin in any way. But it comes from a totally different point of view of the heart. And that is the key issue today, is has the grace of God so infused our hearts so that we are actually equipped in our life, as a church, as we get bigger, to deal well when confronting sin around us? Proverbs 10.12 says, Love covers all offences. Love covers all offences. Love doesn't cleanse them. The blood of Christ does that. Love doesn't condone them, but it does does cover them. 1 Peter 4.8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. I've been so moved afresh going through the Gospel of John. And in John 13, we know the story where Jesus Christ, he washes the feet of his disciples And almost in the same breath, he's prophesying about Judas betraying him. And yet we see that he even washes Judas' feet. He knows what's coming. He knows that Judas will one day turn his back on him very soon. And yet he covers. He is full of love. Extravagant grace. It's amazing that right back at the beginning in Genesis 3, after the fact that even though Adam and Eve have sinned and fallen, they've got their fig leaves that they've constructed, they've put together. But God gives them clothes. Just to have his grace. He covers a multitude of sins. My question to us as we come to an end is this. In this time of massive growth and expansion, will we allow the tidal wave of grace that we have all experienced to truly affect and soften our hearts and empower us to bear with one another in the coming years as we go into all that God has for us? Because the reality is this, it's, it's, it's more subtle even than when we come across obvious sin. That's one case that we will all at different times experience, the equivalent to it. But often, you see, it's not even a question 
of massive sin, it's often just a question of encountering perhaps lack of wisdom or someone who's just got it wrong or perhaps a difficult situation that just demands grace from you. Those are the moments that we are going to be facing and probably are facing right now. And the choice we're going to have is to say, Lord, I draw upon the grace that you've shown me to empower me afresh, to bear with one another. You know, one of the most amazing things at the moment, I don't know whether you know about this, but in, uh, in America, Willow Creek, the church, 20,000, 30,000 in Chicago, amazing church, has just announced something that they've done a massive review of their church. And they found an amazing fact that um, they, they have a sort of a philosophy called participation, which is the key way that people grow in God, this is according to their philosophy, is through participating in activities that the church does. And what they've actually found is, is that although that is a key part, there are massive areas in these Christians' lives where they're in deficit. There's a heart cry of tens of thousands, it seems, saying, we are desperate just to know how to read our Bible and just to know how to pray and just to know about discipleship in our character rather than so much in what we do. And humbly, courageously, Bill Hybels and his leadership team have publicly repented. It's extraordinary. And said, we've got this wrong. We're going to change. We're going to do better. Amazing act of leadership. I mean, just so brave and courageous and godly. But you know what? Particularly in the UK, the evangelical press and all the different magazines that are out there, so many of them have just done a ham. They've seen an area of weakness. And rather than actually honouring with great respect the leadership of Bill and and the team, actually wag their fingers. Often people who lead churches, probably about 10 people, are criticising a man who has done more probably to raise the profile of the local church in the last 50 years than almost anyone else. It's astonishing. We can so easily fall into this, and God doesn't want that for us. He wants us to be a people who learn from these stories. What will your attitude be like when me and Gustav get it wrong? (laughs) That's that's the eldership I'm talking about. Because we will, and we do. You know, we do our very best to hear God through his word, through the spirit, through prayer. But there will be times when we get it wrong. And we'll have to say it and go, oh, guys, I'm so sorry. We really, we, you know, we're only human. What will your attitude be like? You know, what will your attitude be like when those things happen? And the reality is, I want to say this, is that guys, responding well when foolishness, lack of wisdom, blatant sin... Just incidents that demand grace. Responding well in those times. Being a Shem or a Japheth where your heart is soft. It won't just happen. (laughs) It won't just happen because we have an enemy. We do have an enemy. 1 Peter says he prowls around like a lion. Trying to devour us. We have to be a people who realise that actually it is a choice. And I want to finish by saying this. Is that I believe, friends, that we at City Church are at an incredible moment in history. I truly believe it with all my heart and soul. We as a church are knowing the outrageous favour of God in so many ways. You might have trials in your life, but I want to say corporately, as a family, God is showing amazing, amazing grace and love, particularly in the form of growth, in terms of people coming into the family, getting saved, becoming Christians, knowing the grace of God, but also in terms of his, his, his manifest presence. His felt reality, which is what God wants for all of us. It's, it's so exciting. And, you know, the reality is the thing that holds that all together and enables us to go and continue and to be transformed from one degree of glory to another and to become all that God has for us is unity. It's unity and depth of love. And it's having the truth that we've looked at today right in our hearts. Once, once this starts to get into your soul, suddenly you apply it in every situation and you realise where you realise it's like a toolkit. That in any situation that you could respond badly, you go, no, I don't want to be a ham. I want to be a shem. I want to be someone who goes, no, Lord, you've been so gracious to me, so everlastingly gracious, and you promised to continue to be, and I'm experiencing it even now. Lord, let that infect my heart. God, keep us in a place of being soft-hearted. It's so important. Because there'll be times, you know, the amount of times I've had people say to me, you know, I was walking down the street, and I waved to you. You didn't say hi. I didn't see you. You know, it's, it's so often, as a church of this size, we can so easily not realize the enemy loves to whisper things. You feel a bit on the edge, don't you? Yeah, you're different. 
Shut up, enemy. Shut up. This is the moment. This is the moment where God says, come on. Draw upon my grace. Believe the best of one another. That's what Shem and Japheth did. You can almost see the, you can almost imagine it. Going in, hearing the report from Ham. Now he's drunk? That's not like him. That can't be true. What, really? Well, mind you, he's not that great at the old homebrew. You know, he gets the percentages wrong a bit sometimes. Added a naught, 4%, went up to 40 I don't know, whatever happened. Somehow dad got it wrong. Love covers these things. It believes the best. It's not just a little neat proverb. It's, it's absolutely foundational for us. You know, there'd be times when you think, about times, people have said to me, you looked at me in a very strange way. Do you hate me? And I'm like, what? What are you talking about? Where's that come from? Anyone here identify with that? Many of you, yes. Because the enemy hates unity and love. We believe the best one another. There'll be times, I say, where you think, why is Tom and Gustav, why have they made that decision? Well, probably we've got more information, actually. And times you have to go, well, obviously we want you to always keep dialoguing, asking us, come. You know, we're accountable in that sense, totally. But also, there's a sense in which you say, you know, we believe the best of you. We believe that. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. It's a whole series. And God says here, we see this in the living example of Shem and Japheth. You know, it's, 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 the, it's the foundation that will allow us, as a church... Just so strong, as a wineskin, flexible, rolling with the punches. When things go wrong, when someone that you thought you really loved seems to do something, you think, whoa. Remember, remember what we see here. Remember, draw upon the grace of God. Draw upon it. Draw upon it. Allow it to infect and soften your heart afresh. And then, and only then, Look at the situation. Assess it. Have a heart of Shem that is softened. Still takes action. Sometimes still confronts. But still with an attitude of restoration and love. Friends, I believe, I know this is quite a practical, specific thing, but I believe if we, each of us own this, if we own this one thing in our hearts, say, Lord, I believe. You know, it's amazing of a church of our size how infrequently I hear about bickering. It's so infrequent. It's amazing. I read a lot of literature leaders put out, and it's just, this, you know, it's all about, so often, this conflict and this confrontation and this. And I'm like, wow, um, what, I don't know what's going on with our church. Maybe it's all going to happen one day, I'm sure. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't happen. But I, this is an encouragement. It's, it's saying, yes, you're on the right track. And it doesn't have to be the way that other churches say, we can do this, guys. Amen. We can do this. Yeah. We can see a city turn around for God, Amen. one person at a time. You know, we're going to see more colourful people with colourful past coming into this church. Amen? 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 We want that. And there'll be times when they'll open up to us and we'll know stuff. And we'll think, oh, guys, confidentiality in the right sense. In the right sense, you understand that. But time to unpack that now. Obviously, you've got to be accountable. I'm not saying hold on to things that are going to get you into an awkward situation. But what I'm saying is this. is friends, you know... God has got amazing destiny upon us. It's totally by grace. None of us deserve it. But if we guard our hearts, if we allow the grace of God to daily, hourly fill us, friends, honestly, it will be a toolkit that means we can grow bigger and yet grow stronger. It's the dynamic of the kingdom. Bigger doesn't have to mean being less intimate at all. More intimate, more loving. Should we stand? Father, Father, we love you. We love you. We love you. Do we, do we love him? Yes. We do. Let's just open our hands. Let's just physically demonstrate to him as an army before our commander. You know, someone once said, it's not like a fight. It is a fight. <laughs> and we don't fight against flesh and blood. Unseen principalities and powers. I believe even right now, in these final moments... There's, I just believe that in, in your lives right now, God's identifying an application right now. There's a situation, the situations you're facing, people, and you're thinking, gosh, I haven't actually, I haven't quite, I haven't approached that quite with the right attitude. My heart's actually a little bit smug, or my heart's just a little bit hard. Right now, wonderful counsellor, 
come like a wave across this room. Even as we, even as we come to move out into this city again for a fresh week of bringing your kingdom into a dark place, right now, wave of God across this room in marriages. Oh, in marriages. God's just, just touching that afresh. We can all be good on the Sunday morning. We can all be good in the workplace, in the secret place. Young marriages, even in this room, marriages that have been going for decades. Lord, bless us with a fresh touch of softness. Lord, who are we to judge? God, God, a fresh touch of heaven. Even now, students, Christian students here, and you find it difficult not to judge when you see your non-Christian mates doing stuff that is so out of order. God giving you an amazing ability right now to go the extra mile. To go the extra mile. To go the extra mile. Thank you, Spirit of God. Right now, Lord, we draw upon you. We remind ourselves of the grace of God. Lord, would you soften every single heart? Every heart. Lord God, keep us tight as a church. As we grow with amazing, amazing destiny ahead of us, Lord. As you increasingly do things that can sometimes shock us and surprise us. As your presence comes and sometimes it can almost scare us, Lord. Lord, let us believe the best. Let us know, Lord God, that our heart as a church is to give glory to Jesus. Always, always, always. Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Great. Thank you so much. We're going to call it a day there. You are dismissed. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. If you're a visitor here today, it's been so brilliant to have you. Do go up to our welcome desk. Coffee and tea will be served. And if you want anything, prayer for anything at all, our ministry team will be readily available down here on our right. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. Amen. Shining like the sun Boring like the rain Raging like the storm Refreshing me again I receive your love Your grace Frees me from the past It purges every sin It purifies my heart heals me from